The year was 1996. My wife and I were staff members at uh, the Ohio State University with Crew, a campus ministry there. And in one of our campus staff meetings, we were introduced uh, to a book called Desiring God by John Piper. How many of you know the name John Piper? Raise your hand. If keep your hand up if you've read something that John Piper has written. Well, if you don't have this book, you ought to. Now, it looks different than this. This is an old, ancient copy. I believe it was written in 1986. But it's as powerful and relevant today as ever. I'm not sure at that time I'd ever heard of the man. But I got a copy. I read the book and was gripped. It became one of the top ten books that I have ever read. I met John Piper once for a few minutes up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's become like a mentor from afar. We each have people in our lives that though we don't know them or know them well, they speak powerfully into what we think and believe and how we live. John Piper has lived almost 75 years of life with holy ambition, like many who have gone before. And it's a contagious ambition. He was raised in the South, went to Wheaton College to study pre-med. In his first year there, he got mononucleosis, changed his major, went on to study Bible, went to seminary, did a doctoral degree in Germany, and then came back and for a few years taught at a seminary in the Twin Cities. But in 1980, John Piper took on a pastoral role at Bethlehem Baptist Church in the Twin Cities. And for the last 40 years, has motivated, has mobilized Christians for a life of holy ambition. And because of him, in part, thousands of people see God and see his mission differently, and I am one of them. John Piper's written dozens of books. He's preached thousands of sermons. He has a keen mind. He has a passionate heart. He has a gentle spirit. And he's compelled by the word of God and by the gospel to the nations. He speaks at churches. He speaks at theology gatherings, uh, college conferences, pastoral trainings. He's a small man with a powerful voice and an influence that is almost unquantifiable. Like I said, taught a little bit in seminary, never served in cross-cultural work apart from his studies overseas, but remains passionate about mobilizing now generations of Christians to the most important things in life. Surrender to Jesus, attachment to God's word, involvement in the Great Commission, allegiance to the local church, and a delight in God himself. One of the many Piperisms, here's one, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we give our lives to him and offer our lives in holy ambition. He's one of many who have followed in the footsteps of those who have gone before, chiefly the one who followed Jesus Christ as the missionary to the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul. For Paul, whatever the difficulties of life, he lived with an ambition for God. He believed in full speed ahead living. He believed in full steam ahead proclamation. God could slow him down. God could speed him up. God could take him on a detour. God could even sideline him for a while. But as far as it depended upon Paul, he would not sideline himself. He would not abandon the race. Paul would not get distracted from his calling. Paul had one life to live, and he was determined to make that one life count. 
Later on, Paul would write in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. But I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul would not waste his life. We find this perhaps most clearly at the end of Romans chapter 15. I'd invite you to turn there. If you brought a Bible, that's great. We encourage you to do that each week. If you don't have a Bible, but you'd like one in your hands, just raise your hand. Our hosts will give you one on loan. If you own a Bible and forgot yours as a gift to you, if you don't, we want you to read the Word of God. We're at the end or near the end of our Living Out the Gospel series from Romans chapter 12 to Romans chapter 16. We're seeing how the gospel transforms our lives in all kinds of practical ways. We're seeing what it means to serve and to follow Jesus Christ, full of realism about this life and full of holy ambition as we live for him. That's true of Paul, full steam ahead. Grab your Bible there, stand if you would, as we often do here at Grace. I'm going to read the last part of Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. I'm reading from the New International Version, and the Bible says this. Verse 22, this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. Paul writing to the Romans. But now that there is no place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through, and have you assist me on my journey there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however... I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Verse 30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Thanks. You may have a seat. Thanks for honoring the scriptures in that way. I hope you picked up an outline on your way in as we look at four simple but important sections of this last part of Romans 15. The first is this, beginning in verse 22, Paul's desire to visit Rome. Paul begins with an explanation. He says, I, I've made many attempts. It's been my intention to come and visit you in Rome, but I've been unable to. Why not? Well, look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says there, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building upon someone else's foundation. Paul says, In the meantime, I've been busy about apostolic ministry. I've been proclaiming the gospel in regions where Christ has not yet been named or is known. I want to visit you in Rome, 
But God's call on my life, my commitment to following God's will has temporarily prevented me from coming to you. And that's an important principle for us as followers of Jesus Christ, that God's will always trumps our desires. Let me say that again. God's will always trumps our desires. What kind of desires? Sometimes our desires are sinful. We might want to cheat our way through class or steal our way out of taxes or sleep around out of marriage or lie our way out of problems. God's will always trumps our desires. Sin's toxic. But sometimes our desires aren't necessarily sinful. We might want to enjoy a high standard of living. We might want to maximize our leisure time. We might want to be recognized by other people as important. Those aren't necessarily sinful. Yet even so, God's will should trump our desires. Sometimes our desires are actually good. They're admirable. We want to provide safety for our families. We want to ensure a good inheritance for our children, our grandchildren. We want to excel in our careers. We want to have comfortable relationships. But even with good desires, God's will trumps those desires. They may be genuinely good, but God's will is always best. And that's what Paul was facing here as he wrote to the Romans. He wanted to visit them. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, it was a good thing. But Paul had something better. Or God had something better for Paul. God had something more important, more urgent, more strategic for Paul. And Paul recognized that God had to say so in his life. That God had called him to be his tip-of-the-spear missionary to the Gentiles in regions where Christ was not known. That Paul had a mission of presence and proclamation of Jesus. Let me ask you, what's God called you to? What's more important? What's more urgent? What's more strategic than maybe the endeavors that right now you're drawn to? Even more so, is God's will trumping yours? Paul writes here, there's no more place for me to work in these regions because I fully proclaim the gospel of Christ. That's an incredible statement. In a few short years, Paul's witness to Jesus Christ has gone throughout the eastern Mediterranean. Paul's followed God's will for him. Paul has been the missionary to the Gentile world, and now he has accomplished it. How? Because he's established a beachhead in each of those regions, and from there, the believers can take that to the rest of the region. That's what's called regional church planting. That's the gospel to the nations. Paul was a man on a mission. And we ought to be men and women on a mission too. Whether some of us give to gospel witness or go and plant churches in other cultures, whether we help mobilize and send and support those who do, whether we welcome those who come from other countries who have never heard of Jesus Christ or understood the gospel, each of us is called to invest our whole lives in the gospel cause. Let me say that again. Each of us who knows Jesus Christ is called to invest our whole lives in the gospel cause. Nobody exempt, nobody with nothing to give. 
Remember what Jesus said to some of his first followers? Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Piper writes, in other words, it's better to lose your life than to waste it. If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. It's not about how to avoid a wounded life, but how to avoid a wasted life. The tragedy is when the bad, the good, or the better become the enemy of the best. And the best life trumps the wasted life. The wasted life is a life without a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. You you can hear it from Paul. He lives with intentionality. Paul doesn't just pass the time. Paul doesn't just avoid badness in life. Paul was investing himself in the gospel in this battle of the ages. He didn't want to look back on his life and wonder why he did what he did where he did it, with whom he did it, what he did. Paul wanted his life to count. Paul wanted to be able to give the same answer that 19 centuries later, David Livingston did. David Livingston was a a pioneer. He was an explorer, a missionary to Africa. And at one point they asked David Livingston where he wanted to go as a missionary. And his reply was this, anywhere, as long as it's forward. See, neutral was not an option for him. I've noticed that intentionality in life is somewhat of a lost virtue among Christians. And I notice it perhaps even more among young adults today. More than in my generation and perhaps a generation older than me would say the same thing about both of ours. And there are some legitimate reasons for that. Some of it is the responsibility of us who are a generation or two older. But it's still a tragedy. Because followers of Jesus, whether they're 80 or 60 or 40 or 20, ought to live with intentionality and focus and ambition. See, without something to aim for, people have nothing to live for and therefore nothing to die for. There's a place for planning in life. It's popular now to to say, you know, I don't really make plans for the future. Come what may, I'll just see what happens. But there's a place for planning. Because when God gives us his spirit as followers of Jesus Christ, it puts within us a holy ambition for our lives to count, to be significant, to be intentional. Not to live with presumption. We know that God can redirect us. He can slow us down. He can speed us up. He can pull us to the side. But to let our lives count. We don't chafe when God rewrites the script or redirects the path, but we want our lives to count nonetheless. James Montgomery Boyce, who pastored 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia decades ago, said this, It's better to dream great dreams for God, even if they are not fully realized, than to dream no dreams at all. Unless we see visions, dream dreams, and make plans, there will be no great steps forward in the work of the gospel. If you're between the ages of 18 and 30, I especially want you to see that. Your life is meant to count, and God has good plans for you, and you are useful, useful 
in the days ahead. Paul's desire here, he says, was to visit the Romans on his way to Spain, verse 24. He wanted rejuvenation. He wanted refreshment on this pit stop as he made his way west to take the gospel to Spain. He knew that that would encourage him and he could encourage them. We're going to see more about his heart here in the coming verses. But he wasn't only driven by his desire to see the Romans. He was also driven by his conscience, his will. And we see that in the second point, Paul's need to visit Jerusalem. See, before Paul could go visit the Romans, he had to visit the saints in Jerusalem because he had made a commitment to them. Part of God's will for us is to follow through on what we said we would do. Paul needed to go to Jerusalem. Why? Well, Jerusalem, Judea, was a poor area of the world. And like happens in much of history, those more remote places tend to have the money and possessions uh, sucked out of them, all headed toward the, the capitals, the big cities, the places where the elites live, where, where promotion and, and, and influence is had. That was true here. Rome had been enriched as many places on the perimeter had suffered. That includes Judea. It was one of the provinces that had been impoverished. Now note here that Paul's concern wasn't primarily that poor people lived in Judea, though that's true. It was more that followers of Jesus, believers who were poor, lived in Judea. See, within the body of Christ, we have an obligation to care for one another. And that's an important distinction. Our calling as the body of Christ is not to alleviate poverty in the world. We're made to think that all the time. You're probably in the same boat. I'm already getting solicitations year end to help poor people in this country, in Africa, in Israel, around the world. And it's not that giving to any of those causes is wrong. It's that our highest priority and obligation before God is to those who belong to his family, to other believers. See, we're told in the scriptures to care for the needs of our physical family and our spiritual family, both geographically close and relationally close to us. One of our study Bibles says, well, Paul correctly assumes that financial aid for needy Christians is a normal part of the Christian life. Keep that in mind in the coming weeks. Tim Keller, a pastor in our day and age in New York City, said of all the things that arrest people's attention, that, that captivate them in our modern era, here are perhaps the three most. Chastity, those who practice sexual restraint and faithfulness. Integrity, those who do what they claim. And generosity, those who hold their money, their possessions loosely in the face of need. Chastity, integrity, generosity. I think he's on to something. Generosity is evidence that we're Christians, that we care for one another, that we care for the work of God, that we are blessed to be a blessing. Keller wrote, our bank statements are perhaps the greatest evidence of having minds that have been truly transformed by the grace of God. Feels a little personal because it's probably true. I ask myself the question, what does that mean at the end of 2020 if God has supplied and more than supplied our needs? 
What do we have to give to those who have need? Let's look a little closer here at what Paul describes. Paul proclaimed the gospel. Paul planted churches in what is modern-day Greece. Macedonia to the north, Achaia to the south. And as those people came to faith in Christ, they gathered together in communities, they grew in their faith in Jesus Christ, and developed generosity, they were willing to give to those who had need. If this sounds familiar, it should. Here at Grace a year ago, we, we worked through 2 Corinthians chapter 6-9, through 9, a series called Transparent Generosity, about Paul's work in those regions and his collection of a gift to take to the believers in Judea. Same story here. Paul wanted to take that financial collection and deliver it in person in Judea. Back then, they didn't have Western Union. They didn't didn't have Venmo. Uh, Paul sees value in making a personal visit. Paul didn't choose Zoom there, and he wouldn't have if he had it. It's far better to be with people, to say things in person, to greet them in person, to show affection in person than over Zoom. Do I hear an amen? It's fascinating how Paul views this gift as both a delight and a duty. See it here? He says they were pleased to do this and they owe it to them. Well, what's Paul mean there? Well, salvation comes from the Jews, doesn't it? Through the person of Jesus Christ. Many of the early missionaries who went to the Gentile world were Jewish themselves, including Paul. So Paul says there's a reciprocity here. Those who have sacrificed for your benefits spiritually, when they have physical need, you're there for them. And this is a demonstration of that. But it's more than just that. It's more than just mutual back-scratching. Wearsby writes, the offering from the Gentiles was an expression of love, note this, a practical relief and a sign of solidarity. How so? Well, generosity by nature says, you matter to me. I'm thinking of you. You're valuable. That's why even the worst gift from me to my wife is usually received with joy. She notes that I care about her, that that I'm thinking about her, that I love her. The, The Gentile Christians here, as they give to the Jewish Christians, will say just that. But... But a gift also, the best ones, meet a real need. The best gifts are not just well-intentioned, but they're also well-placed. They they provide something that would otherwise lack. They prevent something that would otherwise occur. You know, I could go out and buy my wife a new car, but she already has a good one, and she cares very little about cars. Point A to point B. But if I buy her a new furnace or a new vacuum, or a new fridge because the existing one isn't functioning well? Now that gift is more valuable because it meets a need. That's true with this gift from the Gentile believers to the Jewish believers. The the Jewish believers are suffering in poverty. They, They need relief. And a financial gift would be timely and it would be treasured by them. But third, and perhaps most important, This gift would be a sign of solidarity. It's a word we don't use all that much. But but getting the Gentile believers to give financial help to the Jewish brothers and sisters 
And for the Jewish brothers and sisters to accept it would bind these two groups together in solidarity. Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 12. This service, it's a gift, that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. As you care for the needs of fellow brothers and sisters, people will see that and say, what's behind that? And they'll hear the gospel. Solidarity is one of the themes in Romans that both the Jews and the Gentiles now represent part of the one people of God. See, this isn't spiritual reparations based on race, Jew, Gentile. This is spiritual solidarity based on grace, that we've all been receivers of the grace of God, and therefore we care for one another. Paul must go to Jerusalem, but he still intends to move on. Verses 28 and 29, Paul's plan to visit Spain. Paul speaks of his desire to visit Rome. He speaks of his need to visit Jerusalem. Now he circles back to his plan to visit Spain. We might say one flows from his heart, the other from his will. This one from his mind. Strategy. What was that strategy? It was to see the gospel spread throughout the known world, the Roman world, the Mediterranean world, to sow the gospel seed and to establish churches. And each of these places would become then outposts of gospel witness in the region. We saw this last week. Paul's strategy was to evangelize populous and influential cities and plant churches there and then leave to others the radiation of the gospel into surrounding villages. Find the key strategic place and let gospel witness do its work. Paul's pattern serves as a paradigm for us. Let me give you three phrases that show it. The first is apostolic mission. Apostolic mission is when people cross cultural boundaries with the gospel to establish beachheads of people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. New regions, usually new cities. That's apostolic mission. Second, widespread evangelism. That takes place when people come to faith in Christ in a certain region, a certain city, and then they gossip the gospel everywhere they go. Work, home, neighborhood, hobbies, and the like. Third, pastoral shepherding. As these local churches come together, God gives shepherds, pastors, in order to equip, to mobilize, and to send them back out into apostolic mission. Do you see the cycle here? Apostolic mission, widespread evangelism, pastoral shepherding, and it goes on. We do that here at Grace. We send apostolic missionaries. We spur on widespread evangelism. And we seek to train you, one another here, to be equipped with the gospel to live, to speak, to send, and to go with it. 
Boyce writes, God calls his servants to the missionary task. But he also places a duty to support them on those who remain at home. That is your duty if you have a regular income and are not yourself serving on a foreign or other missionary field. That's why we send and support missionaries. That's why this church gives hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to and through global workers and to missionary projects so that the gospel could be heard. That's why we support special projects like the one at the Chateau this year, because its impact has not just been in a little village in France, but all over France, to evangelicals there, to, to establish churches, to see people from other continents, including Africa, come there for training. It's not something small, it's something large. And that's why we're a part of it. In verse 24, in verse 32, here in verse 29, Paul tells them that he wants to visit them in Rome on his way to Spain. He'll bring joy and he will end joy his time with them. He, he knows he'll be refreshed. Oh yeah, and one more thing, Paul says. I'm looking for assistance from you for my work. This is an indirect kind of euphemistic way of saying, I hope you can provide me with some resources and funds for this gospel mission to Spain. Paul's not presuming on them. Paul's asking them to be partners with him in the work of the Great Commission. And that's what those who are sent from us do too. That's why we support many of them with five-figure support gifts each year. The last thing we want them to be worried about is financial support so that they can live. We'd rather them be concerned about how they can see the gospel spread. Paul said, would you support me to the Romans? Those that we send say to us, would you support us as we go from you, with you, to the nations? We know from history, as we follow the book of Acts, that Paul actually got to Rome. And he spent not a few days, but he spent two years there. It didn't happen as quickly as he hoped for. It was not simple how he got there. He ended up going in chains as a prisoner so as in part to protect him from Jewish unbelievers who wanted to take his life. But he got there all the same. And he had a thriving ministry in Rome. Before he gets there, though, he concludes this chapter by writing to the Romans, whom he would see in the future, and he pleads with them to visit God. Verses 30 to 33, Paul's plea to visit God. Visit God is a weak way of saying that you Romans would plead on my behalf before God, that you would pray for me. Remember, these are people that Paul's never met. But Paul knows that they share the same Lord, the same faith, the same mission, and that unites them. It's experience that we have sometimes with people from all over the world of whom we know nothing but when we meet them, we realize we have everything in common that matters. I think of times that I've been uh, overseas at some gathering, 2008 in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, 2015 in Bangkok, Thailand. In Thailand, for instance, there were 50 or 60 delegates from around the world, part of the Karis Alliance that Pastor Dan referred to. 
in theory, everyone spoke either English, French, or Spanish. Some were rather rusty in those. There were uh, dozens of languages represented there. We differed in all kinds of ways. Habits, bedtimes, uh, food, uh, greetings, language. But what we had in common was way more important than all those things. Same Lord, same faith, same mission. So when we smiled at one another, when we greeted one another, we knew that this went to our hearts. Paul knew that here with the Romans. He'd never met them, but he knew that they were committed to the same things he was, and it gave him great joy. Paul appeals to them that they would pray for him. There's one big word here that we don't see in our English versions from which we get our word agony. Paul says, strive together with me as one in prayer for my needs. Wrestle with me in prayer. This isn't throw up a prayer to God, say, God, bless Paul. This is over time, ongoing, fervent. Would you pray for me because I need it? Wrestle with me in the cause of the gospel. Same word that Jesus uses when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Same word that Paul uses when he talks about fighting the good fight. This is not passive prayer, but active, sacrificial, fervent prayer. Have you ever prayed like that? In your worship program, you have a list of the global workers that we support, and they would beg us to wrestle with them in prayer for their work. Paul asked for prayer. For what? Verse 31, first for personal safety. It's actually even stronger than that. Some of your Bibles say for deliverance, for rescue. Paul knew that his presence in Judea and Jerusalem would not go over well. Paul was preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Paul had taken the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Jewish unbelievers hated that and hated the fact that Paul would do it. Paul knew that his life would be in some danger, and indeed it was. We read in Acts 21 that Paul found opposition, even persecution. They had to rescue him to save his life. And he later ended up in Rome as part of that plan. Second, Paul prays that the Jerusalem Christians would accept the collection, the gift. Verse 31. That gift did come to Jerusalem. We know that. And it was indeed well received by those believing Jews. But Paul prayed in advance that it would be. Sometimes a gift is not well received. It's not expected. It seems condescending or demeaning. It's easy to push it away and say, I don't have need when you do. Paul asked the Romans to pray that the Jewish believers would gladly accept this sign, this gesture, this sacrifice from the Gentile believers because it would knit their hearts together and God did it. Paul had a long journey in front of him just because he went there. Paul arrived much later in Rome, tired from his long journey, exhausted, I'm sure, from the opposition he faced in Jerusalem. Paul had what we call now PTSD from all of the backlash from his treatment there. So when he prayed to the Roman or appealed to the Roman believers to pray for him, he, he pled better than he knew. 
Paul arrived in Rome in need of refreshment, and he found it in need of rejuvenation, and God met him there. His itinerary wasn't what he had planned. The simplicity of his journey wasn't according to his wish. Paul knew that there would be difficulty in his life if he followed the will of God for him. And he knew that he needed other people to pray with him, for him, to God, so that his work and their work might result in the advance of the gospel. And indeed, the gospel advanced. Not only to Rome, but by some accounts, we're not sure, even all the way to Spain in Paul's lifetime. And it was worth every sacrifice for him. Let's close with a few areas of application, perhaps questions for us as we consider Paul's example and the example of these Roman believers. First, are we a church that serves as a hub for gospel witness, that we receive, that we support, that we send those who go? The hero of this account isn't just Paul. It's the Roman believers who partnered with Paul. Is that us? Second, do we know our cross-cultural workers? Are, are we praying for their needs and their opportunities, praying for their regions, praying for their witness? In your worship program, please take that. Please make that a permanent fixture in your Bible or somewhere that you would pray systematically for them. Those needs are current in this COVID season. Third, are we living with a determined, holy ambition in life, one that counts for the gospel? Or do we drift around in life with the one life we have? Fourth, are we holding our lives with an open hand, saying, God, if you want to redirect me relationally, occupationally, geographically, so that I can be more useful to you for the cause of the gospel, I'm willing. I may not like it at first, God, but I'm willing because I belong to you. Fifth, are we willing to be redeployed? Are some of you here willing to say, if God wants me, us, to go cross-culturally with the gospel, we're willing. God can direct. Six, for those whom God doesn't send, are we willing, eager to be Senders, to be mobilizers, to be sacrificial givers, to be fervent prayers in partnership with gospel advance. See, Paul knew that his life wasn't his alone. His life belonged to Jesus in the gospel. And all the circumstances of life were connected to that. He said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, writing toward the end of his life, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Listen. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains. I am a prisoner for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Because I'm in prison and my life has become harder. People have been emboldened to speak the gospel of Jesus and it's worth it. Can you say that when life complicates for you? 
Is that my attitude? Am I willing to let God do that with me if it serves his gospel? The old adage goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Believers pursue an intentional life for Christ, like Paul, like the Romans, while being divinely steered by the Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your work in Paul's life, your work in the Roman church, your work as the gospel advanced, as people sacrificed. We thank you that that work has not stopped, but you continue in 2020 to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. Make us a people willing to hold our lives loosely and to hold your gospel tightly and to say, here we are, Lord. Use us, direct us, send us, sacrifice us so that your glory and your gospel may go forth. Thank you that each one of us who belongs to Jesus Christ is useful to you. And I pray that you'd work in us together for your good work until you come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.